Welcome to Training Unleashed, the show that will help you design and deliver training that's off the chain and will make a difference. Now, here's your host, Evan Hackle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of Training Unleashed. I can't tell you how much I am looking forward to this discussion because we're really going to be talking about the premise of the whole podcast, which is how do you advocate? How do you, how do you make effective training happen within your organization? I have with me Phil Jones today, who is a professional speaker and author. He's written many books. I happen to have three of them. They are some of the most fun, run, fun loving, easy to read, practical books you'll ever get. Uh, we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but Phil, why don't you just give everyone a quick background on yourself? Sure. Let me keep this as brief as I possibly can. Is um, I started my first business when I was 14. Um, I built a number of businesses through my teens. By the age of 18, was offered a prestigious university scholarship. Decided I didn't want to go. Became the youngest ever sales manager for a giant retail group in the UK. Um, very quickly started to run the training part of the business, helping develop sales training programs. Got picked up by the largest independent furniture retailer in the UK wrote the majority of their sales training process and principles that are still used today. Went from there to build retail empires with two Premier League soccer clubs. Went from there to build a property business that turned over 240 million at its peak. And since 2008, I have been taking the principles and practices I've learned through my experience and the experience I've gathered um, and built a tiny little training business that's now gone on to serve over 2 million people around the world and um, get great joy out of seeing people move in an audience and understanding how to be able to influence people from a stage as big as 15,000 to a stage as small as five. So um, I get the world of training and I don't believe that there is a profession in the world that is more rewarding in moving other people to action than being able to multiply it through the benefits we can achieve within the training environment. You know, I, I love what you just said, and I'm going to follow up on it, because I think a lot of times people listening to this podcast don't understand the value they add, right? impact they can have in others. So maybe just take a second here and talk about what you've done in training and how it has impacted others. Well, I think the first thought is to know that training really falls into three areas, right? You've got, you've got kind of product knowledge and process type training. You've got skills-based trainings, and you've got attitude-based trainings. I rely on most of the corporations that I work with to say that, hey, we can do the process product knowledge stuff and we can do that fairly well. My experience tends to be that that ends up being the majority of training delivered by corporations, yet it's the attitude and skills-based training that means that the product knowledge training actually finds its way into implementation. So I think, and even the titles of my books also talk towards this with the, with the repetitive nature of the word exactly, what almost every delegate in every training is thinking is how does this relate to me and what do I do now? How do I use this? Not just a principle of like, oh, that makes sense. It's that will work for me and here's the payoff and here's the why. Most of my work is in the area of sales and salesmanship and people see salesmanship traditionally as, as, as isolated towards generating a yes or a no on a product or service transaction that results in a dollar amount. For me, sales is far bigger than that. Quite often, actually, what we're doing is selling an idea, an action, a behavior, or an outcome. And I think that when trainers start to realize that that's their job, is you're selling a change of behavior or you're selling a change of outcome. 
And the expectation, if you do your job right, is that people will leave that training room thinking, acting, or doing something differently as a result of the time they spent together, not just knowing how to, but believing that they can, then um, good news is that we've made a difference. And that's where the reward comes from. Yeah. And it's not just a difference in the company sells more product. It's a difference in those people's lives because the skill sets that you're training on, particularly when you're training on attitude and, and things like that, will impact them in their home. It will impact yeah. them everywhere. And I guess when training is done right, it's the difference between pay-per-click marketing advertising and organic search engine optimization, right? If you train somebody right, what you've got is something that will work and bring rewards and returns for you for the long term. If what you do is you chase the short-term win, then you will get the short-term result at best. Um, and I think this is, this is where training sometimes gets misconstrued. And too much training is, oh, there's this change in our industry. We need to train people on the new process. Or there's a new system or a new software. We need to train people how to use that. Whereas what we could spend more time on is, it is alongside those trainings, training people how to think, training people how to navigate change, training people how to actually be able to take personal ownership and responsibility for what needs to happen next, um, and, and training people how to collaborate. It's those soft skills that, that, that so often are getting forgotten in the fast-paced world that we live in as it is today. So what I love about your books is your books ask provocative questions. They, you know, <laughs> they, they, they ask the questions that get people to have the aha moment or aha thought. Right. Well, I'm going to put you under a little pressure because we did not plan this at all. But if you're you know, one of the people listening to this podcast and you go, you know, Phil's right. We, we, ought to be, we ought to be training people on skills beyond just product knowledge and, and, and things of that nature. But I can't get management in the organization to buy in and making that investment. Okay. What would they do? What questions should they ask? How could they, how could they get that buy-in? Okay. Well, I, I think we need to propose the, um, the outcome to them in the form of a question. Now, this could be lifting some words from say exactly what to say, and we could create a question with the preface of how open-minded would you be to? Hey, how open-minded would you be to us developing a new program that resulted in blank, blank, and blank? That's very difficult to be able to say no to. Or, hey, what would need to happen if, would be another way of being able to preface a question that way around. Or, how would you feel if blank, blank, and blank were achieved? Now, all of a sudden, what we're doing is we're using the potential outcome as a steerer towards the action. Yet more often than not, what we're saying is, I'd like to develop a training that would allow us to be able to do this, 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 and this. And, um, and everyone goes, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll do that tomorrow, next month, next quarter, next year, never. And that's what ends up happening. And we hit this frictional resistance. Why? Because we're talking about change. We're talking about putting through... Um, a, a huge amount of effort without true clarity or understanding what the outcome is. If we put the outcome in front of the action, then what happens is they see the value before the expense, which means that people are more likely to want to go chase that thing. It's a very interesting way to look at it. I, I really, I love that idea. So you, you want them to see, because what people care about is the benefit, yep. right? Like that's what, you know, what would that mean? Uh, so let's, let's go and let's follow that up. Okay, they go, yeah, that would be great. I would love to see that. You know, if we could make that happen in this organization, that would be wonderful. Okay. Well, you then help them fill the gaps and you get them to build the value. You know, one thing I'm failing to understand here is just what the financial or commercial impact this could really have on the business. 
So answer me this, if, you know, how many people do we have in these roles right now? Oh, we have 112. Of those 112 people, how much do you think they're losing at this right now? Ah, well, you know, is it this, this or this? Well, it's about that one. Okay, so every single day they're losing about, you know, $500 per day from not actually being able to convert at this point or from not being able to do blank or for this reduction in inefficiency. Through your mind, how long has that been going on for, boss? Well, you know, it's been as long as I've been here. So that's what, nearly five years. So for nearly five years, you've had 122 people losing blank about the money. So does this sound like something that's worth me putting some time, effort and energy into to see what we can do collectively to be able to go out and fix this? And they'll say, well, yeah, sure. So knowing that this could help us potentially generate blank, would it be worth us investing maybe a tenth of that blank number into developing a program that would allow us to be able to fix this problem? Well, yeah, that sounds like it makes sense. Great. How soon do you want me to get started? See that question? Not do you want me to, but how soon? Well, sounds yeah. like something we should work on straight away. See, what I've done is I've removed a no option. I've just put a time constraint on it and asked them to be able to fill the blank. Well, what you've also done very beautifully is you've had, in essence, the customer, the decision maker, to right. find value. And everybody's a customer. You know, an yeah. audience member is sat there saying, sell me on this. Why is what you're saying important to me? Your boss, your stakeholder is a customer saying, why is your idea better than the other 12 ideas that we're thinking of right now? Why should I give you my attention as opposed to the other 20 members of leadership that are acquiring my attention? Why should we direct attention that way around? And then there's the end user customers there too. But everybody is a customer. And if you treat people as customers and you understand your job is not to sell your idea, but help other people to buy your idea, then what happens is, is that we change the framing and we allow ourselves to be able to position the idea in questions. Why we position an idea in a question format is because the other person chooses it. Nobody likes to be told what to do, but everybody likes to know what to do. Yeah. So the goal is here is to get them to think it was their idea or at least to have them involved in the idea creation process. That creates ownership when they own the outcome and they own the action too. Guess what? It's not your idea anymore. It's theirs. When it becomes their idea or partly their idea, then the likelihood of follow through is significantly better. And trainers need to think the same when they're packaging information for others to get. The last thing you want as a trainer is somebody saying, my goodness, you were brilliant. Because if they think you were brilliant, it means that they leave that room feeling less adequate, less capable. Your ultimate goal is them leaving the room saying, damn, I feel brilliant. Damn, I feel more capable. Thank you for empowering me. Thank you for enabling me. Thank you for inspiring me. Not, damn, you were brilliant. Yeah. I, I want to take a point here. You've made a lot of good points, but I want to just point this out. It is very hard for someone to argue the value of something that they have personally defined what the value is. Correct. And, and it, this is such a, uh, such a key point because you can go do the math, right? You can go look at turnover figures. You can go look at, at productivity figures and you can go and say, oh, and here's my Excel spreadsheet showing you how much it's worth. They're just going to spend their entire time telling you why you're wrong. Right. In your assumption. You, you could say, look, we're going to get 11% uplift. And they say, well, I've done the math and it seems like it's 10.96. And you spend all of the energy in argument, even though you're both right on the same point. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, that's a, a powerful, powerful message for people. Good. Powerful message for people. So I love what you're saying and, and I see it, I see it as incredible, incredibly powerful. Um, how do you get 
the organization itself, and I'm talking now about the training organization itself, to have a little bit more self-esteem. And so I sit back, you know, when we talk about training unleash, you know, the idea is let's unleash the power of training. Part of the issue is that the training departments don't know how to advocate for themselves. And I think you've given really some great framework for it. Part of it is an internal self-defeating attitude within training. Okay. Um, so how, how do you tackle that? I have some thoughts around this. And I think the first thought I have is I want to ask a question of you. If you were running a bridal dress shop, a wedding dress shop, say that was your business, what is the most important day to you to measure the success in a transaction with a customer? What day should you be thinking of or chasing? Tuesday. Okay. But what is the specific day within the transaction itself if you're owning a bridal shop? How do you know you've done a good job? What is the day you should focus on for a job well done? Oh, you're talking about the day of the wedding. <laughs> ah, see, there's the assumption that, that you might jump to, right? It's the day of the wedding. <laughs> it's not the day that you sell the dress. Yeah. It's not the day that you finish the alterations. It's not the day they leave with the dress. In fact, it's not even the wedding day. There's a more important day than that if you want to truly understand whether you delivered on your promise, whether the action was the right action for the consumer. And that day isn't even the wedding day. If you've ever consulted with a bride, you'll learn that the most important day for how that dress performed has nothing to do with the day itself. It has everything to do with how she looked in that dress in the photos following the event. Hmm. So the day they receive the photos is the day that you should have huge awareness. with. That's the finish line of the success of your transaction. So what I urge more and more people to do is to move the finish line of where success is. Too many training departments think the finish line is we had 112 people to get through this program. We got them through this program. Tick box. We did it. They didn't get clarity of what the finish line was of the impact of what that training was. And then the finish line after the finish line. See, loads of people were in the New York Marathon this weekend just gone, and people think the result was completing the marathon. No, the result was completing the marathon, getting the medal, and being able to post about it on social media. Right? That's yep. what people wanted to be able to do. They wanted the recognition of the fact they completed the marathon. They didn't want to complete the marathon. And I think this is what we need to get clarity of, is what the results are that we're looking to try and achieve from our training, and then celebrate those results. And I think by celebrating too early, what happens is, is we don't give ourselves the chance to be able to build our posture. Yeah. Because the result of which is like, woo, we did it, but you didn't, you didn't do a thing. What you did is you got through an X number of slides or X number of pages within a, a workbook, or you pushed a number of people through a knowledge base. You didn't deliver the results that was promised by the training. If you focus on the results and the results of the results, and you get clarity of knowing that what you did was worth it, damn, posture grows. Now you can walk with swagger. Now what you have is the impact of saying, our work was worth it. Yet the reason I believe that confidence doesn't exist in some of those departments is because they don't know whether it was worth it. They have no idea whatsoever as to whether the work they did impacted upon the results that were in question that initiated the work being commissioned. Yeah. So let's start there. Move the finish line for every training department and decide to get clarity on what the commercial vision is 
of why this is important and then push past that two more steps and be ahead of the pack and know that what you can do is cement the results of your success through typically something visual that drives a feeling through an organization that creates the callback to you as the training department that said, we did that. Excellent advice, excellent advice. We're so glad you're listening to this episode of Training Unleashed, brought to you by Tortal Training. The difference between Tortal Training and other online training companies is we're primarily a training company with technology rather than a technology company that does training. Want to find out more? Just go to tortal.net. That's T-O-R-T-A-L, tortal.net. At the beginning, you mentioned that you've trained 2 million people. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling it wasn't one-on-one. <laughs> correct correct tell us about how you train tell us about uh, what you what you do everything is different why is it different because constraints are different sometimes constraints are time sometimes constraints are size of audience sometimes constraints are environment sometimes constraints are what you have available as tools or learning styles sometimes constraints are you know a, a budgetary or, or time constraint in terms of how quickly things need to be done so when you say, how do I train? It's, it's with knowledge of the result in mind. What are we looking to try and achieve? Not here's my program and it's so freaking rigid. And I think how I train is, is I train in a very outcome focused fashion. And the outcome becomes an agreeable contract with the audience up front. So with any opening of a presentation, what we need to get clarity of is that we're all on the same page chasing the same rabbit. And why? That buy-in at the front end of a program is the one piece of consistency that would exist through a 18-minute keynote presentation through to a three-day tank training program is that we always have to know why we're there in that kind of environment. The other way in which I train is I train with a lot of rhetorical questions. I train with a lot of rules around engagement. I train by understanding that one of the, the key missing pieces of many trainings is to understand that the audience are part of the conversation too. So that means you need to leave enough space for the audience to be able to play. Sometimes this can be done through breakout sessions and engagement. Sometimes it can be done through rhetorical question within the moment. The other thing that I do through all of my trainings is, is to create key anchor moments that become the pillars for people to be able to to be able to stick the other content to. Now that might be an anecdotal story. That might well be a, you know, a joke that appears. It may well be a physical pattern interrupt with an audience member or delegate, but we are deliberately on purpose creating memorable moments within the training. So it's not the lesson they remember, it's the story, the action, the outcome that they remember and the lesson sticks to that. That makes it portable, it makes it evergreen, it makes it everlasting. So those are some of the continuities in how I always would look to be able to train. Um, you, you, and, I, and I think one other thing that I'd add to that is knowledge of, that the audience has to do the bulk of the work. So it doesn't matter how much work I do, and I do a ton of work from the front or the middle of a room, um, I want the audience to do their part too. So I'm not a big fan of things like workbooks. I think workbooks more often than not create a reason to not do the work in the moment. They take a reason to say, I logically got through the steps, but actually then when busyness takes over after the fact, no lasting change has been able to happen. So even when I run a workbook in a program, my workbook is full of blank pages. 
And the workbook is something that's crafted and created by the delegates and individuals within the room. And I also have a very strong knowledge that whether I have six people in a room or 6,000 people in the room, there is always a room full of people who are at different levels of experience coming into that room. So consideration to be inclusive of the from and to within that experience is a great way of being able to bring the tribe with you and actually be able to use the experience that exists within the room. So there's, there's ramblings around how I train, but trying to lift out some principles that, that are, are consistent across all different levels of training. I, I so agree with you about workbooks. And I, I think you would agree here, uh, people uh, use PowerPoint to their detriment. Um, in fact, a lot of people use PowerPoint to help them as a speaker, not to help the audience. And what I, what I find is, like you said, it's the memorable moments, those anchor events that anchor yep. thought in their mind. And, and I actually think when people uh, take notes, they're not paying attention to what's now happening. And those notes are actually saying to their mind, you don't have to remember this because you wrote it here. And detrimental to, to long-term learning. Well, no, notes can be useful to be able to amplify and enhance listening. The key is, though, that if you know that you're throwing a lot of content at people, you've got to create the space to yeah. then be able to echo and say, okay, so based on everything we've talked about and based on everything we've discussed, what are you going to do differently? What are you going to act upon? What are you going to put into practice? And then gain the accountability of allowing other people in the room to open their mouth and to tell you and everybody else, plus themselves in that moment, that these are the things that are most important to me and, yeah. and give that room for the, for the repetition, give that room for the reinforcement of an idea, give that room for the fact that, okay, Evan may have said that that's a good idea, but Sally thinks it's a good idea too. Jim thinks it's a good idea too. Uh, you know, and, and so does, so does Daniel. Like yeah. now all of a sudden it's like, Oh, Oh, well, yeah, I think I'm probably going to do that right now. So I believe I know what you mean when you say give space. But I want to give, because I think it's a really important concept, if you could give more definition to that, to the people listening. Well, space can be different things in different ways. Space could be, we've just delivered content for 30 minutes, and now what we're going to do is we're just, before we break, we're going to just do a round robin around the 15 people in the room and be like, what's your number one takeaway? What are you going to put into practice? So it's the change of pace with the yeah. change of voice. Space could well be, I want you to run off into breakout groups in fours and I want you to discuss as a group of four what it is that you're going to put into practice, what you're going to act upon, what are you going to change, and then I want you to present that back to the group. That would be another example of, of creating space. Creating space could be as little as a 90-second countdown clock that you just run at various different points. I want you to take a moment by yourself right now and to think about all the things that we've talked about and discussed and for you to decide what are the most important things. Hit a clock up off on the wall and let there be silence to allow people to process. Yeah. What we're asking is we're asking people to either process collectively as an entire group, to process individually in their own mind, or to process in, in a smaller group full of people that has been curated with purpose in mind. So the way I like to take what you're saying and think about it, is I like to think about our brains only have a certain amount of space to remember in the short term. Yep. And if, if we don't give people time or space to think about it and quote, save it in a different way, yep. that short term memory gets rewritten over with what they just barely learned 
and they forgot what they learned before. Yeah. I think this is a really important premise. And sometimes it's moving it to the when. So it, you get the agreement of, oh, that's a good idea. I like that. I think I can do that. Sometimes the processing allows you to attach it to the when am I going to use that? So that's where that movement attaches to. Oh, when I have that meeting on Thursday, I'm going to try that new skill. Oh, when I sit down with that new tool on Wednesday at 10 a.m., that's where I'm going to use this. And the second that we can attach an idea to a real point in time, then the chances of that then being implemented become significantly higher. Once a skill gets used or applied, it now becomes an experience. Now that experience exists, it becomes harder to forget. Yeah. Yeah. And sharing. I, I, I make a joke because I'm the man of variable weight that I go on diet. And I said, I, how, you know, I, and I say this to the audience, how many of you have ever been on a secret diet? And, you know, a bunch of fans go, how successful? And everybody goes, never successful. It's when you declare, right? It's yeah. like the, when you put the, I'm going to do this by that when. So I think you're, you're, you're dead on. You're totally dead on. So let's, uh, in, our in our time remaining, um, just share, like if you could share just one tip. Yep. One tip, what would that be? One tip. Okay. There is something that every audience member, whether it's an audience of one or an audience of a hundred thousand is thinking the second before you open your mouth. And I'm going to tell you what that is in a second. Before I share what that thing is, I want you to remember that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment in which you're saying it. The precise words that we use really do matter. In fact, quite often the difference between you and people like you isn't your skill, your aptitude, your hard work. Quite often the difference between you and people like you is knowing exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to make it count. The knowledge of the right words at the right time can make all of the difference. So what I want you to understand is the biggest tip of all is the first thought that goes through every delegate's head at every given moment is show me that you know me. Show me that you understand what it's like to be me. Now that is empathy wrapped up in a really short little, little packet. But if you can show an audience that you understand their world, their obstacles and their challenges, you've just given permission to go on a gain permission to go on an adventure with them. If you want to stand up there and be able to dictate that you know stuff that they don't and you haven't taken the time to consider what life looks like through their lens, resistance and friction the entire time, regardless of how right you are. So do whatever it takes to put yourself into a position where you can show them that you know them before you get into the meat of a meeting and it will become downhill skiing as opposed to an uphill struggle. What great advice. What great advice. Well, I want to thank you for being a terrific terrific guest. Uh, most people are going to get, you know, a little paragraph describing it, but I'm just going to repeat your name is Phil Jones. Do you, do you have use a the M. Use the M in my name as well as my middle initial. So Phil M. Jones, hit Google there and you'll find me everywhere. Without the M, you might find a Manchester United soccer player. <laughs> so Phil M. Jones, uh, highly uh, appreciate you being on. And, Great to be here. Great to be here. Uh, very insightful. And what I really love about you is how clearly you're able to present ideas and thoughts for people. And, uh, and I know that I'm going to be a better person from having listened to you. Awesome. Well, that's excited to see what you go put into practice and keep the journey alive. And my, my message to, to listeners is, is please don't tell me this was a great podcast. 
Tell me what you've gone and put into practice that has made you to be able to achieve better results and has allowed you to be great. Those are the comments I love to hear. Come find me on Instagram or on Twitter or on LinkedIn and share with me where you've been having some wins. That's the stuff I love to hear. But don't tell me the podcast was great. Tell me what you were able to do that made you better in your role. This has been Training Unleashed, but it doesn't stop here. Just go to trainingunleashed.net to subscribe to the show. That way, you'll never miss an episode, and you'll be well on your way to delivering training programs that are off the chain. We'll talk to you next time on Training Unleashed. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.